Hello and welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me again this week, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how you doing? Doing really well. It's been a uh, a great, if exhausting, week here in the Newland household. So yes. glad to be settling down, and getting a chance to talk some comics. My uh, my wife and I actually graduated our first kid this last weekend. We had the reception on Saturday, and then his graduation from high school was on Sunday. So congratulations, Benjamin. Yes, well done. congratulations. We are well proud. Fantastic. So what you, you mentioned talking about some comic books. We are going to be talking about comic books this week. We're back into the stack. Are. What are we going to be talking about? Getting ready to go back and talk about the comics leading up to a Spider-Man movie, but perhaps not the one that you were expecting. We're actually going to go back and... Because this is the first time we've talked about Peter Parker in our our podcast. We're going all the way back to the beginning with Spider-Man. For the original origin, you're going to get to see our old man Uncle Ben die not once but twice this week. Uh, this is a Peter Parker from the 60s. And then we're going to dive into the Ultimate Universe incarnation uh, that came out in 2000. All in preparation for watching 2017's Homecoming MCU film. This is leading up to the weekend that uh, the second into the Spider-Verse comes out. We didn't have this mix into our schedule, so we're not going to be taking a look at this immediately when it comes out. But I think we are going to get to it, But I think because we both really liked the first into the Spider-Verse movie. And uh, yeah, the, the release date just sort of snuck up on us. I'm actually catastrophically angry about this because I think... The original Spider-Verse movie is probably my all-time favorite Spider-Man film. I absolutely adore it. And I think this one that's coming out next week is going to be really good. So some some inside baseball on how we do things. We've got a big spreadsheet with everything in it that we kind of put release dates in and then plan it out. The second Spider-Verse movie actually got bumped from sometime, I think, of October of last year to this coming Friday and I took it out when it got bumped but I didn't put in where the new release date is or they didn't provide that new release date when they bumped it or something right and so I just didn't realize it was coming out until literally a couple days ago so we will get to it it is a favorite do not consider this a slight against spider-verse it uh, it is absolutely a a favorite of mine yes and 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 the other thing is is it kind of it's weird because it's also very close to the Flash, which we are we're, we're switching mm-hmm. over to DC after we finish up Homecoming to talk about the DC movie that's coming out, and then that's you know less than two weeks away as well. So a couple of movies ended up being very almost back to back. We could have adjusted for that if we'd have had it in the schedule, and we keep trying to revise the schedule as we go through it because. You know, every couple months we have to kind of go through and see where we're at yep. and where we need to, how we need to adjust things for, for new releases. 
We just this fell off our radar, but we, we will get it back on the radar and we will talk. There's a lot of stuff. There is. There's also Secret Invasion starts up on yes. what, the 21st of June. So we'll have to have a primer for that coming up as well. So there's just new stuff flooding in, making it hard to uh, continue on in our march from the the older movies of the MCU. Anyway, for now, enough excuses. Let's talk yes. a little bit of This Week in Comics, if we could, Dwayne. What, yes. uh, what have you found for us in, uh, in your scouring of the web this week? So I want to, so we've talked a little bit about kind of the distribution of comics and kind of the, the, the inside baseball when it comes to, uh, you know, books getting from the, from the publisher to the comic book store. And there was a, an article this week on comicbook.com about image comics signing an exclusivity deal with lunar distribution and. I don't know anything about lunar distribution, but this seems like it's kind of a big deal because they said uh, Image Comics has announced a worldwide ex- exclusivity distribution deal with lunar distribution. The agreement will be effective as of Image Comic titles going on sale in September, uh, which will become available to order on the lunar distribution website for retailers on June 14th uh, for direct market distribution. Image Comics was previously exclusive to Diamond Comic Distribution, but now becomes one of the largest publishers signed by Lunar Distribution, second only to DC. So I guess I wanted to get a little bit of thoughts from you, Dan, on this, if it, if it means anything to us as a consumer, or what it might mean for the comic book stores, that sort of thing. What's going to be interesting is, though, that right now, I get three books every month. I get the Big Diamond book, the previews catalog. I get a DC catalog, and then I've got a Marvel catalog. And now, are we going to have an image catalog? How is this all going to work, right? Diamond sort of deserves this, because they've had a monopoly over the industry for a long time, and they really have kind of gotten to the point where they've taken a lot of the the publishers and the stores, the direct market stores, for granted in some of the things they've done. They've, they've done hugely good things for the industry, but they've also really kind of left themselves open to be boarded by pirates, as it were. And that's what's happening now, right? Sure. And the, the thing that concerns me is how does this work for us as customers? And, and is there a way to make sure that it, it doesn't get increasingly more difficult to find the stuff you want because it's already hard enough being able to just find and order the stuff I want every week from a or month from a comic shop I am a little worried that as all this starts to sort of sort of break up it's going to make things more difficult for the stores and for the consumers but we'll see in it can't be much worse than diamond Let's put it that way, because Diamond has been pretty terrible lately. So hopefully it'll work out well for everybody. There was a note about Lunar Distribution launching in 2020, kind of right at the start of uh, of COVID yep. and the pandemic. And so it surprised me that, you know, I'm looking at the list of, of some of the other publishers that are with them. And then now that they've got Image potentially as well. They're, they're making a, a big swing into that into that space where it looks like Diamond really was the only the only game in town uh, prior yeah. to them. 
it's weird. The pandemic in some ways actually really did facilitate this sort of thing happening as well because Diamond had never had a very good model for sort of paying stores or for dealing with credit with stores, which made it difficult for stores during the pandemic. And then also there was a point where comics publishers stopped putting out comics because no one was going to the store to buy them anyway. And that was a really good jumping off point for DC where they could, while their revenue was low already, make the switch. So it was bad and it was good for Lunar that they marked, that they launched kind of in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah. right? And there's nothing good about it for a business, but it did mean that if somebody was going to take a chance on losing some revenue switching distributors, it was a time that was bad enough for the industry anyways there for a few months for new comics that it made it easier. Anyway, good luck to them all. I hope it works out and yes. that uh, things keep getting better for us. Good. You have a uh, an article or a comment in here about the Eisners. Do you want to tell us about that story? Yeah, so there's been, every once in a while, we get some crazy intrigues and things like that at the Eisners. Really kind of a concerning story this year because one of the books um, that was nominated for, he called it a, a graphic opera or something like this, but a, a comic that was nominated for Eisner's for like four of them, the writer and artist of that actually was a teacher at an art school. It was like the director of the, or the, the dean of the art school for a long time. And as soon as he was nominated, a number of prominent, prominent artists who were working in industry came out and said, this guy was terrible to us. And he demeaned comics for decades and said that none of us would ever be, you know, any good. Uh, Jen Bartel, one of my favorite cover artists, actually said he wasn't even some kind of artistic genius who was cruel to students because of uh, single-minded pursuit of perfection. His cruelty was his entire point. He would openly gloat about making his students cry as if it was a badge of honor he could crush them. So, and she's not the only one. Like, who is so this many of his students Who came. is this we're talking about? Um, the fellow's name is Woodruff, Thomas Woodruff, and he's not somebody who'd ever really done anything before, partly because it looks like he had been sort of too good for comics for a long time and then decided to dip into the field, uh, you know, late or whatever, now that he decided it was, it was accessible enough. But don't know a lot about it, but a lot of people who I really like obviously found this guy to be somebody who had who had not been a productive mentor to them while they were in school. So he's he's removed his uh, himself, essentially, from Eisner consideration, which is good, but it's also kind of concerning that the Eisner Awards themselves didn't really do anything. They just sort of sat back and waited for Woodruff to fall on his own sword rather than really take any proactive action. Maybe that's best, maybe it's not. Um, as a coda, by the way, my wife is actually an Eisner voter. So it's, uh, it's always interesting every year when Steph gets her ballot and she's, she's voting and, and she's a, you know, a school librarian. So she's got all of these books for young adult graphic novels and, and things like that and everything. And then she also reads some of my comics and stuff like that. So it's very cool. The Eisner's is a great uh, award system. Really probably the, the you know, the, the Oscars of the, the comic book world. 
but it's not it's not beyond controversy, obviously. All right. Let's let's talk about Marvel Unlimited this week. There's a number of number ones that are available. Uh, Groot, the excellent Punisher War Journal base, Immortal X-Men, and Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, number one, are all actually number ones that are available this week. And I was looking at the excellent because I was like, I'm not sure what this is exactly. And the uh, the little synopsis of this book is sounds pretty interesting. It says, your favorite celebrity supervillains are back. Zeitgeist is still on a mission to achieve social media godhood, no matter who he has to kill. But the spotlight won't be big enough when the next generation of ex Aces uh, drop in, join Peter Milligan and Michael Allred for the final half of their mutant celebrity saga. Yep. Milligan and Allred are absolutely nuts, by the way. Lots of their comic books are just completely insane. So they've they've done a lot of fun stuff over the years, and as long as you're looking for something zany and not too worried about it always making sense you are going to enjoy that comic book. Okay. So it, yeah. it the the cover grabbed my attention and so it, it it went from there and I thought that was kind of interesting. So that one might I might have to at least uh page through a little bit in Marvel Unlimited to see what that what that's all about. Uh how about a recommendation Pretty for this cool. week, Dan? So a recommendation is to send you off to Humble Bundle, actually, because there is a new Humble Bundle called Image Leading Ladies Out. It's something like 20 bucks or whatever you pay to get 51 books. It includes a full run of the Saga graphic novels, so for some reason you don't have those already. Lady Mechanica books, which Benitez's art in those is absolutely astonishingly beautiful. So if you haven't read uh, Lady uh, Mechanica, I would highly recommend those. It's also got Monstrous, which has won all sorts of awards. Kind of this weird, creepy, uh, sort of a, a more adult horror type of story. Paper Girls, uh, don't have those yet. Wayward, all sorts of other stuff. So really a good, really a good deal and well worth it. If you're into digital comics and you're looking for some great stuff to read, check those out. That sounds good. Let's dive in and let's talk about the stack for this week because yeah these are going to be our first uh peter parker spider-man books uh since yes we had we had the cameo of tom holland in in civil war but this is going to be the the first full mcu movie with tom holland as as spider-man and so we i i've seen enough of spider-man movies to kind of know what I was getting into as far as an origin story and stuff, but it was fun and interesting to look through some of these comics. So tell us what we looked at this week in the stack and why these books in particular. There you go. We've got Amazing Fantasy number 15, 1962. We've got Amazing Spider-Man number one and two from the next year. And then Ultimate Spider-Man number one through seven from 2000 as well as potentially just a mention of damage control number one, which we're not going to talk about a lot, but it's in the movie, so I figured if Dwayne had time, he could page through that one and, and just get an idea of what those are. I did get through that. That was a crazy book as well. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. So what what about these books? Why why the why these books in particular? I mean, Amazing Fantasy number fifteen is probably up there as one of the most iconic of all comic books, right? I mean, you've got you've got Action Comics number one with the introduction to Superman, and you've got you know a few other books that are really up there. But I think this Amazing Fantasy. With that cover of Spider-Man swinging, swinging along, has been reproduced and has been sort of burned into the consciousness of Americans uh, as much as just about any comic book image. So, this is the first appearance of Peter Parker. It's the origin story of Spider-Man, and it is sort of the it, it remains foundational to everything about that character, even down to today. So, and then Amazing Spider-Man number one and two. I think that they then take sort of this quick story from Amazing Fantasy where you get the introduction of the character and start building out kind of the world of Peter Parker. You get you get four villains in the first four issues because there's two stories in each one. You get all of his family and friends and everything like that. So you start to see things and you and you get to sort of really, again, see most of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man for the next 50 years is dropped in in those first two books or three books. So we, I was going to have you read the third one, which is the introduction of Doc Ock, but I'm like, you know, we two gets you pretty much there in terms of after that, it's just more characters coming in. So, And then Ultimate Spider-Man, wow, do I love these books. They're a great read. They're relatively fast read. Obviously, there's a little bit of, of retelling of the story going on because you might find that it's exactly the same, only longer, right? Uh, the first five issues of this are essentially Amazing Fantasy, number 15, just told long form. And the last two books are kind of just a, a coda that gets you to to the end of, of Peter sort of coming to terms with or, or um, dealing with his actions uh, and the death of Uncle Ben and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Some good books, definitely, to uh, kind of get us familiar with Spider-Man in the comics. So before we dive in and start talking about those books in particular... We normally do a creator profile uh, when we're looking at the comics. So who are we looking at this week? So this week, going to talk a little bit about kind of one of the artists who is one of the people we're looking at today. Uh, his name's Mark Bagley. Um, the thing that amazes me about Bagley is actually how he got his start in comics. So that's a little anecdote we're going to go with today. This guy actually he drew the Ultimate Spider-Man comics that we read this week which started a run of 111 consecutive issues that were written by Brendis and they were penciled by Bagley. That is actually the longest writer-artist run in the history of Marvel Comics, right? The only one that really comes close is that he beat out Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, some names you may have heard of before, who had a, a one, maybe, maybe once, who had a 100-issue run or so, I think it was 100 or 106, something like that, on Fantastic Four that literally kicked off the Marvel Universe. Right? Sure. So they had a hundred and some issue run that went from the point where they started Fantastic Four until 
Jack left. Bagley's actually been a successful artist in the industry for something like 35 years, starting in the early 80s, working mostly at Marvel, but also at DC. I don't believe he's ever been a guy who's worked outside of the, the big two, really. He hasn't done a lot of creator-owned work, that sort of stuff. He's very much been a big two uh, artist. But getting into comics, even for somebody who's going to be that good and, and be able to maintain that larger career, can be really difficult. And Bagley was actually already 27 years old. He was working at as an, uh, like as a technical artist, doing technical drawings for, I think, uh, Lockheed Martin or Boeing or one of these, one of these big mechanical companies. Yeah. He'd pretty much given up working on comics. And one of his friends showed him that there was actually something called the Marvel Tryout Book. And it was a contest that Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief of Marvel at that time, decided to put out. Bagley had an art degree. He'd been working on getting into comics for a long time. And so his friend bought him the tryout book. He went ahead and submitted it, and he beat out thousands of other people, won the contest, wow. and then through that, evidently was able to get his foot in the door at Marvel and establish himself with this long career. So, yeah, kind That's... of kind of crazy. But it shows that just having the talent is not necessarily enough in comics. You also... Sometimes just need to get lucky or need to have some way of of getting your foot in the door. Getting getting it in front of the right people at the right time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. That's that's really interesting and actually kind of I will definitely be talking about his art specifically once we get to the uh, Ultimate Spider-Man books here a little later on. But let's let's dive in and let's talk about the the first appearance. The the Classic, amazing fantasy number 15, written by Stan sure. Lee and Steve Ditko. So, you note there in my credits, it says written by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. That is not what it says in the comics, right? Sure. Everything has been, basically everything's being re, kind of rethought to add the the writers or the the artists in as writers on a lot of these just because of the the understanding we have of the way that they were made these days, but in any case, Lee's doing the script. Ditko is on uh, pencils and inks. Um, the colorist was Stan Goldberg, lettered by Artie Simic, uh, and then you know Lee, of course, running the bullpen and doing the editing and all that sort of stuff as well. So, stop me if you've heard this one before, <laughs> but. This is the one where you've got this nerdy science student named Peter Parker. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider. He gains the proportional strength of that arachnid, ends up making a costume, creates some web shooters, and starts to try to monetize his powers. Uh, goes out and, you know, gets himself into a, a wrestling ring and makes some quick cash, that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, his decision to only look out for himself results in him letting a thief get away. And that criminal later then ends up killing his beloved Uncle Ben. The story then ends with Parker grieving, as he's learned the lesson that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Wow. So. I I did not stop you. I have seen and heard this one before. <laughs> and surprisingly, I will tell you, it is, it's just 
like I sort of expected it to be, actually. I mean, they have, as as far as, like, all the different uh, versions of Spider-Man that have been made into movies and whatnot over the years, it's... This is pretty much the story. It, it, it hasn't changed much. Yep. No, it is, I think, interesting in that there is something so primal about this. You know, that it's a simple story, but at a certain level, it really, I believe, almost comes down to being more of a myth or a fable in our modern world. But that this, this could be a parable or something like that. Because... It has a very strong sort of moral at the end of it, right? Yeah. Great power comes great responsibility. And that is woven not only then into, into sort of the story, but then into that character from that moment forward for 50 or 60 years, you know? And so I just find it amazing how, you know, they're just running these stories out dozens at a time trying to get them through the mill and every once in a while there's something that comes through that is just perfect yeah and you wonder how this happens you know almost like with Casablanca when I've read books on what a mess the making of that movie was and how rushed it was and then somehow you get this thing that stands the test of time as this you know amazing piece of art that's what Amazing Fantasy 15 is it's just kind of this thing that was put together quickly, but it's got a beautiful, absolutely a beautiful through line. Yeah, the the story is, you, you know, it's simple, and, and I definitely agree. Like, it, it, it is, there's nothing complex about this. This is easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether, whether you're 8 or 80, you understand what's going on in this story. And, and as yep. you said, it, it is, it is, it's written in such a way that it just sort of it feels perfect it doesn't feel like it needs to be changed you if you come Mm -hmm. into this and you look at this i cannot think of a writer or a director or producer or anybody that could look at this and say okay this doesn't make sense or this 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 doesn't work we Mm -hmm. need to change it it doesn't there are We've talked about how hokey I think some of the kind of genesis or the beginnings of some of these heroes as well as some of the villains that we've seen. And this is about as far in the other direction as I think you can get. This just feels so solid and so foundational, I think, I think is the best word to describe it. It is, you cannot... uh, it's amazing to me that I can keep seeing what happens to Uncle Ben and it still kind of hits me in the chest yep. every single time, no matter how it's told. I still know it's going to happen and it still gut punches me every time. Yep. That said, obviously there's ways that it's been extended and it's been sort of like, you know, embellished on and whatever. But as far as just the basic elements... That you've got this this young kid with problems. He suddenly finds himself with powers. And the first thing he thinks of is, hey, I can make everything better for me. Right? How do I make money off of this? Then that, that decision to just look after his own needs causes something traumatic to happen that gets him to refocus on the world around him in a bigger way. 
and then right. he goes on to be a hero. And it, it really, I don't know how it fits with like a Joseph Campbell hero's journey type thing, but it's got almost that sort of mythic kind of quality to it in the way the story is told. So I always like going back to this one. And the fact that it is so short as well. Yeah. This is not a this is not a big story. It it's or it's a big story but told in a small space. You know? Right. Anyway. So that gets us the start. Um Ditko's art. What uh, what did you think of the art or did did you notice the art much? It I mean it was not my favorite. It did not it, like it it served the purpose of the story it told the it helped tell the story but it wasn't anything that like resonated with me i guess so do you remember last week's doctor strange or a couple weeks ago's doctor strange story by ditko i much well, better right i i like ditko's work in doctor strange better than his early work on spider-man his later work on Spider-Man also, he starts taking a lot more seriously. And these first ones, it seems like he's moving pretty quickly. There's not a lot of shading. There's not a lot of complex line work. It seems like these are very basic drawings for the most part. Now, he's still a skilled draftsman, so everything flows and it's easy to follow. And... He's got that ability to make Spider-Man look like this kid that, you know, is really sort of moving quickly and whatever. So he's talented, but this isn't Ditko's best draftsmanship, I don't think. I, I like some of his other yeah. art a lot better as we move along. I think that through the, the early part of the 60s, he really gets a lot better, at least in the way that he does stuff on Marvel. He's got some earlier stuff with other things that I really liked before Marvel. But in the Marvel stuff, it seems like he really sort of decides to be good as we move towards the middle. And with Ditko, it's very possible that he did have to decide that. But anyway, um, so that was that was the first one. Then what happens there is Amazing Fantasy is one of those where they just throw out ideas out there. So many people responded saying they liked Spider-Man, they wanted to see more of this character, that the next year, he then gets his own book. Amazing Spider-Man comes out in 1963. And the first two issues of this are the ones that, that we read. Each of them has two stories. So the book is divided in half with each of them. They're all written by Stan Lee and Ditko. They're all penciled and inked by Ditko. Uh, we've got Goldberg on colors again. The, the lettering is credited to John D'Agostino. Um, sometimes it's a little hard to figure out who actually did color and let it, letter some of these things because it's not necessarily in the books themselves. It's been pieced together from later. But, uh, but those are the credits uh, as of what we see there. These books are pretty much the same. So each of these is going to have two shorter Spider-Man stories in them. Um, issue number one starts out Spider-Man's feud with the Daily Bugle as after he ends up saving J. Jonah Jameson's astronaut son, the newspaper man believes that somehow the real reason his son was in danger from the astronaut launch was that Spider-Man had like sabotaged, 
sabotaged the launch so that he could then go up and save Jonah's son and become a hero. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And so he he launches into him with his with with his publication. Uh, so from the very beginning, issue number one, the Daily Bugle being sort of a, a foil to Spider-Man and hating him and not hating any of the other heroes. They're not like, right. you know, ragging on the Fantastic Four all the time or whatever. It's just Spider-Man. Oh. He just hates him. Uh, second story then sees Spidey breaking into the Fantastic Four's headquarters because he wants to try to gain membership to the team and also get a paycheck because uh, he thinks that everybody on the Fantastic Four is getting paid a lot. They're making a bunch of money. And Reed's like, no, we only take what we need to survive and everything else goes to scientific research for our crime-fighting, you know, apparatus and everything. Right. At which point Spidey kind of loses interest. Like, Whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. this, this then is followed by him actually going out and having to fight the chameleon and foil his effort to steal military secrets while disguising himself using his chameleon sort of um, various disguise capabilities to blame Spider-Man for the theft. So, so second one, we get the introduction of the chameleon, also a long-running sort of uh, sort of villain in Spidey's gallery. So then, so that's book one. Book two, this one begins with Spidey uh, ending up battling someone called the Vulture over the city while trying to stop him from stealing a case of diamonds. And we also see Peter sell his first photos to J. Joma Jameson in this story because Jameson is desperate to get a picture of the Vulture. Nobody can do it. Spidey's able to do so by using a small camera that he got from, uh, from Aunt May, and then he builds a camera into his belt buckle for use later. Um, so that, we now see him coming in and starting to make a little money off of that. In fact, most of his relationship with Jameson is that Jameson never pays him enough and he's angry. This is one of the few stories where he's like, hey, here's a bonus, you know? So he gave him <laughs> he gave him more than he was expecting. Yep. Second story, then we have Peter working with a famous engineer, kind of getting mocked by the kids in school because they're like, here's our best science student. Who's, he's excited to go and do that. Somehow the engineer gets a radio that's been repaired by someone who is actually called the Tinkerer and he's repairing radios cheap so he can put surveillance equipment in them to help the alien race that he is in league with who's trying to take over the earth yep and spider-man has to detect that this is going on and then go in and break up that gang and stop the invasion of earth by the aliens it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a little far-fetched. I, I would actually tell you, out of all, all all of these stories, that Fantastic Four story actually sort of kind of resonated with me a little bit. I liked, yep. I liked that story, I think, best of these four short stories. The interesting, the, the first story in issue one did sort of the retelling of yep. what we saw in, in the... Amazing fantasy number 15, you know, and also sort of built this as like, you wanted him, here he is, here's your Spider-Man. Yep. And uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely kind of got the ball rolling, I guess, uh, when it comes to that. But that it, is correct. If you were a kid and you got superpowers, this is the sort of thing you'd do, is try probably, to, yeah, you know, go probably. and find your heroes and say, hey, 
now I'm strong like you. I want to be on the team, right? And uh-huh. so there is definitely, with all of these, the fact that Spider-Man is a kid, I like that they have him act like a kid. And, he, and this yes. has been something that's been talked about a lot over the years, that one of the reasons why Stan Lee found such a such a hit with Spider-Man is that they actually made the kid, the young guy, the star of the book, which very rarely was done back then. Usually the teenager was the sidekick. Yeah, the right? sidekick. Yeah. And instead they put him right in the front and they deal with his problems at school and they deal with the fact that he's not very good with girls and they deal with the fact that he has no money and his family is kind of poor. And then after the tragedy, there's even more problems where his aunt is going off and pawning her jewelry because they have to make some money. She's got to be able to take care of the family with, with Uncle Ben gone. And so it's a it's a story that a lot of you know lower lower class kids and even even middle class kids could really find things to associate with. And that's probably one of the reasons why Spider Man almost immediately became one of the most popular heroes in comics. Sure. I could definitely see that. Uh, artwork on this I feel like was a little bit better than than Amazing Fantasy. It's mm-hmm. like it's like Ditko took a little bit more time. It still looks similar, but it just looks like there's a bit more detail and there's a, a bit I don't want to say more action or something, but it just it sort of felt like there was it just it just felt like the art had more going on with it. Yeah, I would I would agree. He's starting to get starting to get a little bit more uh, in there. It would be interesting, though, to look at, like, the... Because he was on it for, I think, 33 books. If you go and look at the stuff he's doing by, like, 30, 31, 32, because 32 and 33 are considered to be some of the best Spider-Man stories ever made, um, I think you'd find that the art is substantially different. It evolved. And I haven't read them in a couple of years, so I can't, I can't say entirely, but... I think you'd find that they're substantially different. So, so the vulture, the vulture, I, I forgot how, like, he's just like this old guy and he's like, he really is. He's, he's just this old guy and he's got like these like wings and he's sort of flying around and like, he's flying around in the air, but he's also like flying around in the sewer system because that was his mm-hmm. big plan is, you know, he know he he learned about this basically like gem diamond convoy that was going to be going, and he's like, they might expect me from the air, but they'll never expect me from underground. And he just basically pops up from a manhole and yeah. <laughs> takes the diamonds from them. It's a bit corny, I guess. Yeah, it's say. it is kind of goofy. the The crazy thing is that. A lot of these guys actually starting out. Peter's Peter's adversaries are mostly like middle aged guys or yeah. older. You know, yeah. they're all they're all like the the vultures literally just like this bald, kind of very thin, gaunt old dude. And you know, J. Jonah Jameson's grain at the temples, whatever. Most of his problems come from. It's almost like a generation kind of thing. Yeah. That it's it's these older guys that are the ones causing him trouble. Yeah. So overall, 
what did you what did you think of these? They uh, this would would if I'd have said we're gonna read fifteen of these, how would you have felt about that? It would have been okay. I don't I don't think I would have loved it, but I probably could have like soldiered through it. Um, you know, like I said, I liked the Fantastic Four story, so I guess I I would have been hoping for like little stories. In, I'm assuming a bunch of these have multiple, you know, two stories per book sort of thing. So I'd be hoping for more stories like that as we keep going further. But yeah, they get away from that eventually. Do they? Okay. Okay. Yep. Eventually he he takes over as just one story in the book, and that's the that's the way it goes. And I think that's partly that they just kind of over time, once they know the book's going to be successful and the like then they can really start uh, they can really start dedicating more time and resources and the like but initially probably Ditko would have been doing this one and even doing the Doctor Strange ones so an artist can only do so many pages in a month so if he's if they've got him on multiple books each one has to now in this case because he's drawing both stories it doesn't really help a lot but it might be <laughs> right. just the way that they they kind of chop things up in case they need to uh, have replacement stories and the like. So, yeah. So, J. Jonah Jameson, what do you think? He's a he's a piece of work from the very start. Yeah, feel, feels exactly like I would have expected him to feel like. He, he, yep. he came out uh, distrustful of Spider-Man right from the beginning, and basically anything and everything that Spider-Man does, even if it looks good, He's got a, uh, a look at it that there's got to be, you know, there's something going on there, something fishy. And yep. He's obviously up to something. Yeah, he is. He is essentially a an adversary of him immediately. Uh, John Jameson, his son, we're actually going to see him later. He comes back and ends up being transformed into Man Wolf. I really liked the Man Wolf comics. Probably, I, I really liked Man Wolf. They were they were in a comic called uh, Marvel Premiere, and George Perez did some of the artwork on them, and they oh, were just okay. amazing. So, yeah, I know you love your George Perez artwork. No, so you're gonna run I, out now. No. Don't you even don't, start with me. Don't don't please don't <laughs> pigeonhole me into this. I don't. I don't want to hear it, man. I don't want to hear it. So. But, uh, but yeah, so he actually becomes kind of an antagonist, uh, almost in the, if you think of Manvat, if you've ever seen Manvat from, from DC, no? No, never seen never Manvat, mind. sorry. We'll have to get to Manvat one of these days, but, uh, but yeah, he's, he's not really a bad guy, he's just got anger problems once he turns into a wolf with a <laughs> weird little athletic outfit, so, um... A lot of Spider-Man's rogues, though, kind of like we see with others, start just arriving immediately. They just pile them up issue after issue, and then they keep coming back. So a lot of them right now are pretty simple. There's also, as you've noticed, a lot of science going on. A lot of his his bad guys are the Tinkerer, or they're... Because he, he fixes radios because he's evil, and the Vulture is like, I'll be back with better designed wings, and uh -huh. I'll defeat you. You know, so I do like that. And I think that in a time where science 
was very important for you know America, uh, and and that we were doing a lot of this technology stuff. Spidey was very much a science geek fighting science geeks. Yeah. And that kind of did define some of what he was doing too. There was a lot of tech in that, and that starts almost at the at the very beginning. So. And. And then I guess the last thing. What drives Spider-Man? Initially, it's money. And then really, it's recognition. He really does, like almost all young people, he wants that. He wants to be a part of things. He wants to be recognized for what he does. So, you know, the fact that the bugle is always down on him, I think is is one of those kind of like a kid who's always angry that, that their parent is, is somehow or another not appreciating what they're doing or whatever. He's, he's constantly got this need for validation, and he just doesn't get it from anybody except Aunt May, who is uncompromisingly loving for him yes. for the better part of 60 years. <laughs> so. so, all right. So that takes us through the original origin of Spider-Man. Now, it's been 30 years. 40 years, those people who grew up with Spider-Man now have had kids who have had kids. And Marvel's starting to think maybe it's time to actually have a new Spider-Man story for a new generation. You know, that you don't have a teenager who doesn't know what a cell phone is with his origin story, right? Right. So, because of that, the ultimate universe was envisioned. And this was a place where they could bring out new versions of the characters while still maintaining the original universe. This isn't 616. This is... This is not. This is the Ultimates universe. That's why it's called Ultimate Spider-Man. That makes sense. I didn't put two and two together until you... Yep. Until just now when you were talking. <laughs> yep. Jeez. So, this is me So they never palming. redo. There's no way you could have known that. So, but... But Marvel never resets their history, really. So there are things, well, this follows pretty closely with Spider-Man's original origin. There are differences. Right. And so because of that, this actually is sort of the, the beginning of the Ultimate Universe. Because they started with this one as the first of them. Next couple of years, you're going to get all sorts of other ones. You're going to get... The Ultimates, which we've read some of. You're going to get right. Ultimate X-Men, Ultimate Fantastic Four, Ultimate Vision, Ultimate everything, right? It just sort of explodes. But some of them were better than others. And this is by far the one that has had sort of the longest term. Well, I would say two of them. This one and the Ultimates books themselves that are kind of the basis of the Avengers movies and everything are right. the two that have had the biggest effect long-term. Uh, really, really good stuff. But what it meant was that they were going to reboot the, the character in sort of this pocket universe where they could do whatever they want and not have to worry about it affecting the larger 616. Right? So... Okay. The first books of this come out. Um, I remember someone someone saying about this something along the lines of everyone hated this idea and was angry about it. 
until they read the books and then said, okay, this is really good. Maybe I should just be quiet and enjoy. And, and that's kind of how I felt, right? Nobody really thought they needed an ultimate universe. But then suddenly you had this young Spider-Man who, you know, the Spider-Man in the regular universe is now in his 30s. He's running companies. He's married. He's divorced. He's done crazy deals with Mephisto that have made him forget everything and, and lose everything. And he's just this weird damaged guy, like the guy you see in Spider-Verse, right? So um, there's just a lot of things that, that have complicated Spider-Man. So they're like, let's just set him back to beginnings and enjoy him as a character. And so that's what we get. So what they decided to do is they hired Brian Michael Bendis, who at this point is still a relatively new artist in terms of the big two. And this is really where Bendis becomes sort of Bendis, right? <laughs> this is the one where he takes off. Uh -huh. He's going to have Daredevil. He's going to have a bunch of other stuff soon and everything like that. But this is the one where a lot of us first saw him come into the the big universes. He was doing a lot of self-published and other stuff before then. Um, Mark Bagley is on as penciler. We've got Art Thiebert and then some other people uh, who will do some of the inking. Uh, Steve Buccello as the colorist. Uh, Richard Starkings and his comic craft team did the letters. And that was edited by Ralph Macchio. Not that Ralph Macchio, by the way. It is not the Karate Kid. It is the <laughs> other guy who is not the Karate Kid sure. that is editing these comic books. Gotcha. But, in any case, you remember that story from 1962 we were talking yes. about just a little while ago? This run starts pretty much exactly the same, only it's stretched out to five issues. And there's a couple else, a couple others tacked on to sort of provide a little bit of a coda. What they do is they just take that story and they put in additional information. So Peter's still a geek who's getting bullied. He gets bitten uh, by this spider while he's on a school trip and ends up getting increasingly strong and agile. Uh, the lab they're at is owned by Norman Osborn. Otto Octavius is one of the key researchers. And they're the scientists behind this Oz formula that was in the spider they were testing that then passed that formula on to Peter. They think that the formula is going to kill the kid, so they try to kill him first so it will look like an accident, not the fault of, of their chemicals. They fail in that because he's turned out to become increasingly difficult to kill. And then once they realize that, they decide they want to study him because it looks like the formula isn't going to kill him, it's just making him kind of a superman. Peter ends up doing a lot of the same things he did in 1962. He goes out and puts on a hood and takes up some of the wrestling money. Uh, there's a robbery attempt where he decides to just let the robber go past. And again, letting that robber get away and saying, hey, it's not my problem, causes his beloved Uncle Ben to die in a home invasion uh, a couple of days later. The story actually ends with Parker ending up grieving uh, in the arms of Mary Jane as he's learned the lesson that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. So, almost exactly the same yeah, story. It was surprisingly similar. Like, I, you know, now especially so given that this is an entirely different universe, but like even mm -hmm. just before, it was like very, 
very much you, you saw the way the kids were picking on him so you could see the bullying you know the the yep. trip to Oscorp and and you know him interacting with Otto Octavius right before the spider bites him and then you know uh, you see him interacting with Harry Osborne and, and going back to Oscorp because you know they're they're trying to kill him and then they want to study him and they're trying to take his blood against his wishes and find out that he's going to mm-hmm. be basically healthy and and not a problem and and then we see kind of the the transformation of Norman Osborn into the Green Goblin because he he tries after seeing how well it worked for Peter of course it's going to work equally good for him and uh yep. not not exactly the way it ends up working out absolutely yep so and that you know the the green goblin becomes a big part of what we see in the 616 as well a lot of the stuff there even really kind of retroactively is the 616 as well yeah. but I do think it's interesting when you look at some of the other ultimate storylines, how much they diverge and how much for Spider-Man they're like, we can tell the whole thing thing any way we want. Let's just do it exactly the way right. it was before because it, was it worked. It's it's so great. <laughs> we don't change a thing. Let's yep. just let's just expand we, we just on want it. And and yep. make it, you know, give, give you more of the the same story you already know. And, and, yep. and yeah, I mean, you, you talked about, uh, you know, Mary Jane, he's interacting with Mary Jane right away from, from basically one of the first panels in book one and seeing him then basically after learning of uncle Ben's death, collapsing into Mary Jane's arms and the, the two of them are just crying in a, in a full page panel is just, it's something. It, yep. it just, you're just like, again, the gut punch of, the thing you knew was going to happen happening and it still hurts. Yep. And and that's actually one of the big changes is that Mary Jane actually didn't appear almost until the end of Ditko's run in the comics. I think it was like in the twenties somewhere that she finally appears. So they bring her in immediately. They bring in some other, the other characters immediately. And as they move along, they're going to diverge a lot from the 616. But, but, at this beginning, it's like, man, that's that's very similar. Having Mary Jane there, though, I think makes a lot of sense because people were used to that character. It provides that sense of immediate familiarity. And because she lived right next door to him in the comics, there was never a particularly good reason why she wouldn't have been there in the first place. Right, right. right. Yeah, they, so, they should be interacting. They go to school together. They, you know, live next door to each other, you know. It yep. just makes sense. Yeah. So, um, it is. It is also interesting when you look at that relatively short. It's like what, eight page, twelve page Kirby Lee uh, Kirby Ditko story or Lee Ditko story, and the fact that it turns into like a five issue modern comic. How this shows the way that comic decompression happens, and. Bendis is one of the biggest decompressors of all. It can take <laughs> two people getting a cup of coffee and it takes five pages, right? So because of that, it really does show the difference between 1960s comics and modern comics. There are no thought bubbles in Bendis's stuff. So a lot of that, 
you know, like talking things out and the like. A lot of it's got to be done by Bagley's art. And there's, there's not really that internal monologue so much. It is, it's a much different way of telling the story. And I think it works really well. But on the other hand, you know, it probably took you not much longer to read the seven comics of, of Ultimates than it did to read like the three of the original ones, I would bet. And, and book one of Ultimate Spider-Man is 46 pages. So it is basically a double issue. That nope. first issue is, is big. And it got you through the, the spider bite, right? And so there was mm-hmm. there was a lot of kind of re-world building that was going on. You were seeing the, the, the Kong and Flash picking on Peter. Yep. that all you know right right from the start and like it it kind of builds the suspension almost like the suspense of when is this going to happen when are we going to see the change how is that going to look and what's going to be the result and and it it took him 46 pages to do that the first, yep. in, the, in the first issue but it was quick there there are it, it's not as wordy as some of the Mm-hmm. A lot more reliance on the artwork, which, by the way, Mark Bagley has some pretty good art here. I, 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 I wouldn't say he's my favorite, but like, there. One of the things that I sometimes dislike about some artists is it feels like there's an inconsistency in the look of some of the characters. Sometimes, or they they look a little bit different from panel to panel. There is a mm-hmm. remarkable similarity, like almost exact what Peter Parker looks like at the start of book one and what he looks like at the end of book seven, he looks exactly the same. And, and like, you know who it is just by, you, you wouldn't need to see any words on the, in the panel to know exactly who yep. it is. That's not always the case. with all artists. No. And in fact, that is Bagley may not, I, I think he is a, a number of people's favorite artists. Right, because I mean he's a really good artist, but he's not necessarily everybody's favorite artist. But I don't know anybody who dislikes Mark Bagley art, because it is it is very very good storytelling. Everything is solid. Everything is a is easy to understand. He he draws the characters in a way that makes them you know distinctive and everything. He's just a really quality artist. I would say. Again, because you brought up George Perez, there's the right amount of detail, right? There isn't too much detail. There isn't too little detail. You know exactly what's going on. There's not like, there isn't so much going on in each panel that you just have a hard time figuring out what's going on. There's a lot of really fantastic action sequences across several pages of panels to, you know, I loved the fact that every time, you know, like on Marvel Unlimited, you can, you know, you flip it horizontally to be able to see the big two-page spreads, and those always just mm-hmm. look fantastic. And there's never any issues with what order to read the pan. Like you always know how to read it, and you're reading it in the yes, order and everything. And and he's very good at that. Yes, he is very good at that. Absolutely, yeah. 
And, and it's one of those two where there is just something really nice about having a series where the artists and the writers stay consistent for that long and tell a story. You, you don't get that sort of dedication, and you really have to call it dedication, because for somebody to spend 111 issues drawing the same character, yeah. you know, imagine yourself with a job, <laughs> and, you know, that's 10 years on the job yeah. doing the same thing, because if you're an artist doing a 20-some page comic book every month, that's most of your output for that month, because comic pages take a long time to do. So that's a decade of Bagley's creative career spent doing that uh-huh. right and he 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 just pulled it off with a plum and and did a great job i i mean we we've talked about this there's been a lot of times where i've been like there's too much changeover i want to see longer runs with artists and writers especially when i feel like they've teamed up to to put together a product that i really love and I have to imagine mm-hmm. that if you're a fan of Brian Michael Bendis or you're a fan of Mark Bagley, you loved the fact that you could go that long and and keep getting this, you know, a quality book that, that you knew what to expect from everyone. Yeah, it's, it is something Uncommon, that just does not obviously. happen. It yeah. just does not happen. It's normally you're talking... 12 issues these days like you know we've been i don't know if you've been hearing but on like the moon Knight, ray and those folks they keep talking about how you know mckay's still there yeah and and the like and the the idea is that when creators are successful they tend to jump ship and even if they don't the companies tend to try moving them around to something else to revive other properties right. so the fact that we have had now for as long as we have that you know, McKay and Capuccio. Yeah, we're coming up on two sort of years. Team. Yeah, we're coming up on two years. It's a it's a rare treat to have that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, but hopefully they'll continue at it for you know let let let's go for 112 issues, guys. <laughs> sure. They can, they can they can take out Bagley. Um, anyways, it's uh it's pretty cool stuff. So, outside of that though. You know the what do you think of of doing something like this that they essentially just redid the universe and started over again while leaving the other ones now you've got two spider-men same name same character every month different i mean i i don't know what to think to be perfectly honest with you like i think it feels like it it's Kind of a cheap ploy to be able to basically do whatever the heck you want but at the same time if i don't necessarily care because like if if this is what i'm into if i if i like you know the peter parker spider-man like the teenager doing doing his thing i i'm fine with getting a chance to see that again and seeing it in a new era with a new writer and a new artist being able to tell tell some newer or slightly different stories and and mm-hmm. you know we talked about these this being very similar but there are some differences and and some additional you know characters and some things like that that and and that that i think it makes it fun and it makes it interesting and, and it kind of gives you uh you know a new look potentially of of, of the 
of that same character that you already know and love. Yep. Yeah. It was it was contentious at the beginning. I can imagine. But because of the fact that it was it was handled so well, especially initially, it didn't draw a lot of, of long term troubles simply because everybody really enjoyed it. Uh, you had this, you had ultimates. Then, as it went along, you got to Ultimates 3, and you got to some of the Ultimate X-Men stuff that got a little weird, and you got to some of the others where they they started to lose it. Um, but I actually liked Ultimate X-Men. I liked most of the Ultimate Fantastic Fours and stuff like that. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting way to see the characters differently. So, now, one other thing to tie into the uh, kind of a spoiler alert for you here. But to tie into the movie we're not going to be going to see this Friday. This Peter Parker, the one we've been reading for seven issues, is the Peter Parker who dies at the end of this series. And kind of at the end of, of the Ultimate Universe. And when he dies, Miles Morales picks up the, the mask and takes over. So Miles Morales actually is in the Ultimate Universe. So I did not know that. That is mm-hmm. entirely new knowledge to me. Yeah. So he is he is from this part of the uh, this part of of the Marvel world. So kind of interesting. So he started an Ultimate Fallout back in 2011. So essentially, yeah, 11 years or so from from this this series of books there comes a new Spider-Man, Morales. So, and that is still by our man Bendis and then Sarah Pacelli, who we've we've seen some stuff from her as well over the the last while. For correspondence, we had a few we had a few notes this week, mostly of the hey, where's the podcast or what do you mean the podcast audio isn't working variety. This is all something that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what happened, but essentially my audio recorded a little slow. I maybe needed a reboot on the computer or something. So when we finished the audio segment that I'd recorded on mine, again, this kind of a way we do the podcast. I record my audio. Dwayne records his. We obviously are talking to each other, but somehow my recording ended up being over a minute longer. So it's like someone had stretched out my audio uh-huh. so that it no longer synced up with yours. And we'd so my apologies talking. to everybody. So we yeah. would have been talking over each other eventually uh, and in two and completely, completely different, different, completely different Yeah. Kind of like we're doing now, actually. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. But, but yeah. So my apologies, everyone, for that. That was, I guess, on me or my machine. I don't know what happened. Hopefully we've got that taken care of, though. It hadn't happened before. So We're, we're rooting for that not to happen again anytime, would, <laughs> anytime yeah, absolutely. soon. Yeah. Not fun. All right. Stitch it all together. Dan, so we, we finished some comic books, so where where are we headed for next week? We are headed for the first Spider-Man movie in the MCU, which is actually about the 
tenth Spider-Man movie or something like that. Second appearance of Spider-Man. But a pretty darn good movie in and itself. It's called Spider-Man Homecoming. And it's sort of uh, Spider-Man and the Vulture. And uh, he's, he's going to prom. All sorts of things are going on. So it, We're going to get a much longer look at Tom Holland as Spider-Man than we did no. uh, in Civil War. And so I remember really enjoying this movie when it came out, so I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing it again and then chatting with you about it. And, Absolutely. That and sounds that, good. And as we said, we will eventually get to the Spider-Verse movies, both the first one that's been out for a little while and the new one. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on Spider-Man, his first appearance. Uh, Maybe you've read the Brian Michael Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man. Let us know your thoughts. You can send us... Uh, those comments via email that address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can reach out to us via twitter that is at comics there dan i'm looking forward to seeing tom holland again as spider-man and uh and remembering the vulture and and everything that set up spider-man in the mcu because he, he definitely is a fun character there and i love that i've got now a little bit more backstory from the comics yep should be a should be a good time this is one of my daughter's favorite mcu movies so probably we'll uh, be hanging out and watching that one again this week and getting ready for the getting ready for the podcast so we will talk to you all again next week folks have yourself a good one next week take care everybody